from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschalette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Jean Parker on September 28, 2020. Jean conducts participatory research to build cohesive communities throughout the world. Her doctoral dissertation was on emergency preparedness learning through community radio in North Indian villages. She hosted a podcast series called Discovering How for the organization Ethical Business Building the Future, or EBBF which people can still listen to on the EBBF website. She talks about how her interest in radio began and her experience as program producer for Radio for Peace International in Costa Rica. She's now the online program director for the Desert Rose Baha'i Institute. In the interview, she describes some of the online program that she's developed. I started the interview by asking Jean where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I grew up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. My family went to the Methodist Church in Portsmouth. We went there for as far back as I can remember. In fact, I first learned about the Baha'i Faith at the Methodist Church, which might sound kind of strange to people, but we had a rather forward-thinking youth director at the time I was there. And one of the assignments that we were given as uh, teenagers was to find another religion and make a presentation on it. So I was assigned, or drew, I guess, the Baha'i Faith, and so I did, you know, a small bit of research and made a presentation on it, and that was it. Then, after several exposures throughout my life, I eventually became a member of the faith in 2006, so many, many years after that. But religious life was of the Protestant denominations of Christianity, I suppose you could say. I didn't really get a sense of how practical religion could be, how it could be manifested in practical, concrete ways. But I did feel as though I had a spiritual component to myself all along, always had that feeling, didn't always have the rest of the pieces. So what were the circumstances that led you to the Baha'i Faith? You said at different points in your life you made contact with the Baha'i Faith, but at a certain point there was some interaction that made you think, more deeply about the Baha'i faith and then decide to uh, become a Baha'i. What was that? Well, it's a bit of an involved story. Uh, By then, I had relocated to India. I was living in Pune in India. And I had been put in touch with uh, Baha'is there by someone in Costa Rica, actually. One of the Baha'is was an attorney. And she's still an attorney, still a very good friend of mine. And I tried to open a bank account at one of the multinational banks 
in India and they refused to give me a bank account because I'm blind. And they said, no, we can't give you a bank account. We can't be responsible, you know, and they made all sorts of excuses and all of that. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to take this up. So I contacted the person who was the Baha'i attorney and I said, this is what's going on and this is it. And she said, well, why don't you come to my office? We'll discuss it. And so I went to her office. We discussed it. We got the matter dealt with. I had a bank account <laughs> in very short order, as I should have done in the first place. And then she invited me to come to her house for something that she called a study circle. And I thought, well, this sounds kind of interesting. And as I, like I mentioned before, I'd had by then several exposures of one kind or another to members of the faith. So I went to her house and it was, in fact, a study circle of one of the preliminary books that people who are interested in the faith study called the Ruhi series. One thing led to another and I became very connected in a way that I hadn't been connected to religious life previously and eventually made a declaration which is what one does when one becomes a member of the Baha'i faith. And so I like to say that despite itself there was a multinational bank involved in <laughs> my eventual acceptance of the faith. So it's sort of an unusual story, I guess, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's how it happened. Was your PhD work your first introduction to radio? No, it wasn't. So what was your experience in radio earlier? My first introduction to radio was in the basement of a friend of my father who was a shortwave radio operator. And he had every kind of radio apparatus you can imagine in his basement. He lived outside of Washington, D.C. And one night we went there to visit. We went down into the basement and he had in his hand a microphone. I was able to speak with people from all these different places in the world. And I became very interested and very curious about the world. There were other factors that influenced that as well, but that was one of them was being able to talk with people with accents that I wasn't familiar with, who spoke languages I didn't know. And around the same time, my brother-in-law had a radio that had shortwave bands on it. We could sit in my parents' house on the back porch and listen to the BBC from London. That to me was the most fascinating thing. Fast forward to, oh my goodness, when was this? Mid-1990s, I guess. I was contacted by Radio for Peace International in Costa Rica. I was asked to do an interview on, I don't even remember what, I think it was the Women's Conference in Beijing or something in 1995. I think that's what it was. I, I'm not actually quite sure. <laughs> it was a long time ago. And one thing led to another and I was asked to join the advisory board and then I was asked to be a producer and then eventually I became a member of the management team which I suppose unofficially I still am. Um, we maintain an archival website. 
for Radio for Peace. And so that was where I learned to be a journalist and edit and do all of the technical things that radio journalists do, how to engineer my own pieces. I, I hardly ever had an engineer working with me. That was a very long and fruitful association. The radio station broadcast from Costa Rica from the middle of a coffee plantation. At one time or another, we reached 120 countries at least. That was the number of countries that we got correspondence from. So there may have been more countries that we reached that we didn't get correspondence from. Those are the ones we know about. That's where I learned to do radio. I had begun to work in a bit of journalism earlier than that as a result of travel and work that I did in Central America in the early 1990s. And so I had learned a lot about interviewing and how to ask questions, actually trial by fire, to tell you the truth, a very unstable time in the region. If you asked your questions incorrectly, it could be very bad for you. So I had gained quite a lot of experience in doing that and really sort of took to it and enjoyed my time there very much. Now, it's interesting, Jean, you said that in addition to your exposure to people all over the world via the shortwave radio, there were other things in your upbringing that piqued your interest about other people's. Can you share some of that? Well, one of them was that I attended a school for the blind, and I attended the Perkins School for the Blind, and at that time... Perkins was a bit of an elite school, I guess, in the context of such schools. It was also one of the oldest schools just outside of Boston. At the time, there was a teacher training program at Harvard. Harvard University partnered with Perkins to bring teachers and students from all over the world to become teachers of the blind in their countries. And so I was in an environment that was very cosmopolitan, very international, very different from where I grew up, which was in a small city in New Hampshire. So there were people there from throughout the world. There were people there from Vietnam, and this was at the time of the Vietnam War. And the director of the school went to Vietnam and gathered people who he thought could be good teachers in their country. He didn't care that there was a war going on. In fact, his mission in life was an early version of, I think, what we call now capacity building. So he went to places, he got people that he thought could make a difference. He brought them for one year to the U.S. to gain skills in teaching, and then they went back. He didn't care that there was a war. He just knew that there were kids that were being blinded in the war and that they needed to be educated. In my later years, I discovered how much of a role model he was, Dr. Edward Waterhouse. We would sit as kids, little kids, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, and listen to his stories about all the places that he went on summer vacation to find these prospective teachers 
And I learned what life could be if one had a mission, if one had a dedication to something really important. Didn't know it at the time, of course, but he really influenced me. We were all afraid of him, of course, when, when we were kids. We were terrified. <laughs> you know. But his life is really a testament to someone who had a great deal of education, could have done so many other things, and he chose, for whatever reason, to dedicate his life to this cause. In the introduction, we had mentioned that your doctoral dissertation was on emergency preparedness learning through community radio in North Indian villages. So what was the concept behind emergency preparedness through community radio, and how did you apply it for villages in North India? So the story behind that actually does go back to Radio for Peace International. We had done quite a lot of emergency broadcasting into Haiti at various times of political instability. A couple of years after I went to India, I lived in India a total of 10 years, and then I went back for another four years to do my research off and on. So in December 26th of 2004 was the Indian Ocean tsunami that killed over 220,000 people. I was doing some reporting for European and North American networks at the time, radio networks. One of them contacted me and they said, can you get to South India and do some reporting. Well, I, I said, I don't know. I can try. Because, of course, all the trains were full, all the vehicles, you know, there was it was a, a very difficult arrangement to actually get into that part of India at that time. So I arrived there about a week and a half after the tsunami, and did my reporting and I kept thinking to myself what if there had been community radio in the disaster zone at that time because what I was reporting on was the unevenness of the relief and the fact that high caste people were taking the relief supplies that were being given by NGOs and government aid organizations and so forth it was being taken by people who thought they were entitled to it and it wasn't being distributed evenly or correctly. There was a lot of misinformation. There was a lot of erroneous information, a lot of rumors, and that's what people were operating on. And so there became in the area a great deal of confusion and conflict and dissatisfaction and then eventually, of course, lack of trust of anything anyone would say. So the relief efforts were very haphazard, very disorganized. And so I thought, you know, if I ever have a chance to go back to school, I want to figure out how could community radio operate in disaster zones like this. And from your PhD work, you published the book, Emergency Preparedness Through Community Cohesion, An Integral Approach to Resilience, which seems to have a broader theme than your original thesis. Yes, it does. So my thesis, this then took place probably 
eight years, I guess, after that incident, stayed in my mind that long. I did my doctoral work through the Da Vinci Institute in Johannesburg, South Africa. What I did in my field work is that I had two community radio stations. I wanted to work in North India. First of all, it was what I knew. Even though I had relocated back to the U.S. by then, India was what I knew. It didn't know anything about the U.S. at that time. I worked with two radio stations in the Himalaya foothills, and we created educational programs on emergency preparedness and broadcast them to the listeners of those stations. For most of the people in that area, emergency preparedness actually has to do with environment protection. That's the entry point. And as a result of that, my dissertation sort of expanded from just talking about emergencies and mitigation to things like rural economics, community building, education, gender, all of these divides in society, urbanization, a lot on corruption, (laughs) and other aspects of life in this region. So in order to take an in-depth look at life in this region and address this question, the research question, I had to really bring in all of these different things. And because my program is in integral development, integral research and development, by its nature, it invites and encourages and requires the inclusion of all of these different aspects of life and then the intersections between all of those aspects of life. So when I was asked to publish my thesis into a book, which was published by Routledge about 18 months ago, I decided to expand it in the area of community economic enterprise. And how could the process that was used in the emergency preparedness education process that we used be applied in community economic enterprise? And it turned out that there were a lot of parallels in the process that we used, a lot of ways that it could be applied that way. And for people in the audience who are research fanatics, I used participatory research. I also used a technique called cooperative inquiry, which I won't go into here, but really lends itself to participation in building community around a particular issue or opportunity. I also looked at, in the book, I took much more time to look at the influence of the Baha'i writings on economics primarily by Abdu'l-Bahá, who was the son of Baha'u'lláh, the prophet founder of the faith. I looked at his writings on economics, of which there's a lot, and I applied those both kind of retroactively to the work I did in North India, and then also in a theoretical sense to what could be applied as a Baha'i-influenced or inspired economic development 
effort somewhere in the world. I'm speaking with Jean Parker, who conducts participatory research to build cohesive communities throughout the world. Her doctoral dissertation was on emergency preparedness learning through community radio in North Indian villages. She hosted a podcast series called Discovering How for the organization Ethical Business Building the Future, or EBBF, which people can still listen to on the EBBF website. Now, Jean, you had mentioned earlier that you are blind, and in our conversations before the interview, you said that it was a great advantage when talking about applying personal resilience strategies to those of a collective group or community. Can you explain how it was an advantage in that endeavor? I had no roadmap to do this project. My dissertation, the fieldwork especially, the combination of elements, not just the elements themselves, but the combination, the synergistic collective of the elements were unique enough that I actually never and haven't since met anyone blind or sighted who has done that particular set of tasks and theories and, you know, a lot of complexity in the same way that I was required to do. So having a disability, of course, has taught me to be very resourceful, creative, and agile, and also resilient. There were times in this process when all of those elements, when all of those were required, particularly creativity and resourcefulness. There were times when I had no idea what to do next. It was an advantage because at the same time that I was studying all of this material about resilience and literature about resilience, how to go from crisis after a disaster into building a resilient community that has the ability to withstand external and internal shocks. There was this parallel internal process going on of my discovery of my own resilience and resourcefulness and how I had built that over the years. I'll give you an example of how it became an advantage there were many times when it was an advantage and has been an advantage, both in my reporting and other work that I've done as well. People tell me things that maybe they shouldn't. <laughs> I go about my work differently than a lot of journalists do. You know, I sit with people, I eat with them, I have tea or chai with them. I spend a lot of time building relationships with them. And that has paid off. Time and time again, that has paid off. So at some point in the process of doing interviews for my dissertation, I wanted to know more about the regions of one of the radio stations. And I said to the general manager, there was a map on the wall of the region. I said to the general manager, can you tell me more about this region, what is it like? What does the map tell you? There was this pause and he thought for a minute and he thought, I can't just say to look at the map. 
and find out for yourself. So he had to describe what was on the map. He had to describe it in detail while I took notes. And he later said that the act of describing that map really gave him new insights into what that map was. He had made that map. He created it himself. The act of describing it was something he had never done before and that he really appreciated the opportunity to do. And so this thing that many people would consider to be a liability all of a sudden turned into something that provided opportunities for people. And there were other circumstances that created those same kinds of opportunities as well. That's one example. So, Jean, you host the podcast series Discovering How for the organization Ethical Business Building the Future, or EBBF. What's this podcast series about? So the podcast ran for about a year, and it's about ways in which business and people who are in business are applying values and ethics to business activity and working to convince others to do the same. How many episodes did you do? We did 17 episodes in all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I interviewed a variety of people from different parts of the world, some of them in person, some of them over the internet. We talked about every kind of angle on business and business activity, economic activity, other kinds of corporate and privatized organizational development. We cast a pretty wide net when we were developing the podcast as to what we actually meant by business. So there are a couple of programs on education and educational governance, institutional governance, there is a profile of a business that I did in New Delhi that's a French pastry shop. It's run by a family that runs its business ethically with ethics and values, and they can very readily spell out what those are. Fair labor practices, for one thing, gender equity, for another, you know, those kinds of things. I interviewed people from the Soros Foundation, from the World Bank, people who were working as consultants in various business activities. Many of them were Baha'is, and many of them are not Baha'is. And so it was a, a mix of people and many, many different kinds of business activity. And how did you come up with the name Discovering How? That was a collaborative process with <laughs> with the director of EBBF in Madrid and myself and one or two of the board members of EBBF. We played with phrases and words as people do, and mm-hmm. uh, we finally came up with the Discovering How name, title for it, because it, it was kind of Discovering How what? (laughs) What are we discovering how? (laughs) So it kind of created that suspense, I suppose, that a good title does. It makes a person want to find out more. 
Well, certainly your example of the uh, Indian family in the pastry shop is a good example of fitting into the title. They make the best lemon tarts ever. <laughs> I'm here to tell you. <laughs> so, Jean, you're now in Arizona at the Desert Rose Baha'i Institute yes. as the online program coordinator. Now, what brought you to Arizona, and what does this new job for you entail? When I came back to the U.S., I had become acclimatized to warm weather, and so I wanted to go someplace where it doesn't snow. That was all. So I first lived in California. I lived in the Los Angeles area for some years. Then I decided that I wanted to leave California and where was a, a good place to go. So I came to Tucson, and that's where I am now. Interestingly, it has snowed in Tucson since I've been here. I think one time I was horrified, but I really wanted a climate that I could live with, and, and I had no interest in the snow and the cold and anything like that. The Desert Rose Baha'i Institute is located in Eloy, which is about, oh, an hour and 20 minutes north of Tucson, I guess, um, in between Tucson and Phoenix off the I-10. It's a center of learning for the arts, agriculture, and education. It's been in existence since about 1997, and up until recently was very much known as having very good on-site, on-location programs. Sometime prior to the coronavirus, I think, the board began to think about could we have more reach? Could we have a wider participation if we had online programs? And then, of course, the coronavirus came and that kind of sealed the deal of, uh, yeah, <laughs> we need to now have <laughs> online programs. I have taught online for many years at uh, Regis University in the master's program of nonprofit management. And so I applied for the position and got it and began there in August. And my responsibilities are to develop and implement online programs on the arts, agriculture, and other aspects of learning. And one of those online programs, which is on Zoom, is entitled Transforming Our One World, The Power of Stories. So what is this online program about? That's a program, we're hoping to do it monthly, and it's open to anybody. It's stories about some theme. So the first one that we did was on unity. And it happened to be on September 11th. It wasn't our intention that it be on that date. It was a scheduling issue as much as anything. So we thought it would be appropriate to do something on unity. It also expanded into race unity and race amity at that point. The next one that we're going to do in October is going to be on servant leadership. So people telling stories about their experiences with servant leadership. We plan to do stories through photography, community building through photography. We have a program committee that is always on the lookout for themes and topic areas to do our programs on. 
and we also take suggestions from people. So if, uh, if listeners have suggestions of things they would like to hear stories or discussions about, they can let us know. It's uh, a one-hour program. We record it, and it's up on the website for people to listen to. And so how can people find these online programs sponsored by Desert Road Baha'i Institute? They're at drbi.org. So drbi.org, that's where people can find information about our programs. We also have a program that's running monthly on writing called the Write Life Zooms. That's W-R-I-T-E, Life Zooms. I always have to spell that out. We have a program coming up called Art and Soul. And we're developing others. We're hoping to eventually have something every week. Now, Gene, you have a website called buildingresilience.global. What inspired you to create this website? I wanted a place to put my work, my professional work. On that website is a link to my book. There's also a link to the uh, EBBF podcast that you were talking about earlier. There are links to my dissertation summary. I don't have a link to the dissertation itself on there, but to the summary of it. There's a link to a community report that I wrote after my research was completed. And it was a report that was written for the communities that participated in the research. And there's some other things up there as well. Well, Jean, I want to thank you for taking the time to tell us about your work. It's very interesting. You're very welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jean Parker, who had developed emergency preparedness learning through community radio in North Indian villages and is now the online program director at the Desert Rose Baha'i Institute. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website of Baha'iperspective.com and on the YouTube channel of Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Grandma about to wash the floor You ask her nicely if you can do this chore She says, oh no dear, there's really no need She's very happy to see your goodly deed Always be thinking of offering some service To every member of the human race don't be afraid, don't doubt or hesitate, but take your chance before it's too late. You see your teacher about to clean the board. You ask him nicely if you can do this chore. He says, oh thank you, I've so much to do. Very happy to have some help from you 
Always be thinking of offering some service to every member of the human race. Don't be afraid, don't doubt or hesitate, but take your chance before it's too late. Oh, take your chance before it's too late. There's something astir in these provinces of Atlantic Canada. Of people's hearts, they are now prepared for the message of Baha'u'llah. People seeking questions we all face now more than ever we must all arise loose our tongues speak forth his praise cry out in the mountain cry out in the valley the forest the island and the sea there's a
children of men, know ye not why we created you all from the same dust, that no one should exalt himself over the other. Ponder at all times in your hearts how ye were created. Since we have created you all from one same substance, it is incumbent on you to be even as one soul, to walk with the same feet, eat with the same mouth, and dwell in the same land, that from your inmost being, by your deeds and actions, the signs of oneness and the essence of detachment may be made manifest. Such is my counsel to you, O concourse of light. Heed ye this counsel, that ye may obtain the fruit of holiness from the tree of wondrous glory.
can take my life away, but this love will never change. They can take my rights away, but I'll grow stronger every day. They can take my life away, but this love will never change. They can take my rights away, but I'll grow stronger every day. Be a citizen who believes in world equality. We shouldn't have to hide or feel the need to cower. Our beliefs shape who we are, they give us inner power. With our heads held high, we shall walk on. With utmost love in our hearts, we remain strong. They ask the question, we refuse because it is our right to choose. They can take my life away. Take my rights away, but I'll grow stronger every day. They can take my life away, but this love will never change. They can take my rights away, but I'll grow stronger yeah. every day. In the silence of this courtroom, I closed my eyes and saw the future Around the time that we heard from the prosecutors And your honor, I think you've already made your choice So to the jury, please excuse me if I rejoice Cause it was years ago, back when I decided to save a place inside my heart Where Baha'u'llah's resided And my family all around the world will watch and pray So I am not alone, will I surrender? Not today can take my life, my away, life away, but this love will never change. This love will never change. They can take my rights uh, away. Yeah, I'll grow stronger every day. They can take you can my take life my life away. But this love will never change. No, my love will never change. They can take my rights uh, away. Yeah, I'll grow stronger every day. Yeah. To an education, my right to the living I'm making, and yet they keep taking away from me. My material possessions have been ruined and put to pieces. My spirit remains a whole, my attachment thus decreases. Still in the state, though times have changed, they haven't changed enough. The friends must hide, obey, pray to avoid themselves handcuffed. Battles change, but sacrifice remains the same. This is my devotion that ignites my inner flame. They can take my life. Take my rights away, but I'll grow stronger every day. They can take my life away, but this love will never change. They can take my rights away, but I'll grow stronger every day. Yeah. They can take my life away, but this love will never change. This love will never change. They can take my rights.
sweeps the ground beneath us, sweet as water, soft to touch and taste, and well enough to feed us. These bones we wrap ourselves around, that keep our heads from falling, strong as stone, unwilling. Troubled minds that call I don't believe in worrying Having feet on the ground can count as something As long as you can carry it What you say will be worthwhile This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.